Well, what a what a morning already, man. Um, baptism, music, all of just worshipful. Am I right? Worshipful, man. Sam Riley, I just want you to know something about your staff. Uh, Sam just got out of his seat. Did you see it? I don't know if you saw it. He got out of his seat just now. I was sitting here. He got out of his seat, comes to sit next to me. Sometimes we do that, you know, working on the order and getting things squared away for, you know. He sits next to me and he says, if I were any more pumped right now, I'd rip my shirt off. <laughs> so that's how he worships. To each their own, you know. For the record, after he said that, I laughed and I said, you know I'm about to tell the church that, right? <laughs> He's done with that. So it's out there now. And it's online. So it's just, it's just out there now. His shirt is still on. That's true. It's not out. You know, yeah, that's right. Amen. <laughs> Golly. Well, listen, if you've got a copy of God's Word, please open to the book of Acts. We're resuming a series that we began in Acts a while back. Uh, we're going from beginning to end in this book. We try to exercise and practice uh, expository preaching at fellowship, which means that we go line by line, verse by verse through God's Word. And so we kind of took a break from that for a little mini-series during the Christmas season, but today I'm excited to resume. Uh, if you haven't been here in the, in the weeks past as we've been walking through this book together, the main title of the entire thing is, is one word, and that is forward. Forward, as in going forward. That's really what the book of Acts is all about, is that God is going forward, and he will never regress because no one can stop him. He is going forward. Uh, one of the things that I've shown you guys a few times before is sort of a roadmap of the book of Acts. Would you mind throwing that roadmap up there of the book of Acts? <clears throat> Just by way of recap, you know, one of the, the, the theme or the thesis verse of this book is Acts 1-8 that says that God will give his people power and then he will send them to be his witnesses. He uses that word witnesses, meaning someone that tells the truth about what has happened. God's witnesses are to go, it says, to Jerusalem, and then it says Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. This roadmap tells you exactly what the book of Acts is all about. In the first five chapters, the gospel stays in Jerusalem, and then it explodes beyond that. It goes to Judea and Samaria, which is represented by that blue circle that is around the red circle in the bottom right-hand corner. And then when you get to chapter 10 and beyond, suddenly the gospel has really combusted. And it has gone all the way to the nations through God's missionaries. I wanted you guys to see that once again because that is the roadmap of this book as we've been walking through it. One of the verses that I've been singling out most of the weeks that we've been in this book is that the very first part of this book starts in verses 1 through 4 with a bit of an, an introductory remark toward Theophilus, who's the guy who's going to receive these words from Luke, who's writing these things. And Theophilus receives the words from Luke, and Luke says this to him in the very beginning. He says, in the first book, that's the Gospel of Luke, volume 1, he says, in the first book, I've told you all the things that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, the reason that's important it's because he's saying in volume one, Jesus began doing things. Acts is volume two. And the insinuation is, these are the things that Jesus continued to do. Which is strange, because Jesus is only there for the first chapter, and he ascends. But that's just the thing. Is it just because Jesus is absent, doesn't mean that he's absent. The work of Jesus is continuing, not through Jesus' person, but through Jesus' people. He's mobilizing them. And they're on the move, making much of his name. Jesus is present through the works of his church. The book is called Acts, which means acts, things that are done, actions. 
You may have it at the beginning of your, uh, your copy of God's Word in this chapter, in the, or in this book, rather, it says the Acts of the Apostles or something like that. To be honest with you guys, it's a, pretty, it's a disappointing book if it's just the Acts of the, of the Apostles. It must be more than that. It is the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. That's so important because if it is just left to man, there's no power in this book. But it is God. It is God that is working through his people. We left off just before the Christmas season <clears throat> with Peter and John putting that power on display. They had healed a lame beggar and around the temple complex in chapter 3. As a result of this new raising power that they've suddenly put on display, the powers that be, which we'll talk about it here in chapter 4, try to preserve their own power. And they say, what is this new thing that's happening? We feel threatened, and this is what we're going to enter into in chapter 4. There are two eras that are clashing, and only one of those eras will prevail. You have the temple community, people like Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and priests, and then suddenly you have these apostles that are coming and saying, the game has changed. It's different now. And you have this clash where the old temple community is passing, or rather being revolutionized into a new temple community, which is God's church. There's a power struggle here. You may have seen on your worship guide that it says something like the life beyond. Well, I had a change of heart last night and changed the title and changed a lot of the message. So who knows what's going to happen today? That's probably not a good sign, right? There's a power struggle here, and I think that this is really what God would have us take away from this, is that really there's not just a power struggle here. I think that each and every one of us live in that power struggle as well. We struggle to give our lives to God daily, and sometimes we want to be in control and be in charge. And this is not new. This has been happening a long time. And so we're going to see a power struggle in the context while also applying the power struggle in our own lives. But I'm going to tell you guys something. The opposition against the church is not a fair fight. Because as I said, the title of this book is really forward. God will not be stopped. His opposition will be squashed. And we see this in Acts chapter 4 this morning. Acts 4, I'm going to look at verses 1 through 12 today. It says this. <clears throat> and as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. <clears throat> and when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which men, by which we must be saved. As I said, we have to see this in its appropriate context. And so I know there's a big gap between the, what we looked at in Acts last time and this time. And so just one, one more time, the context of the healing that precedes this has to be established before we can understand what happens here in chapter 4. 
Peter and John had healed this lame beggar who was asking for money, and Peter says, I'm going to give you something a whole lot better. They took it then as an opportunity to explain who really did the raising. It wasn't Peter, and it wasn't John. Jesus had done the raising. It was his power. Speaking of raising, Peter and John accused the crowd generally of killing the Messiah, but raising, but God raising him up. He's saying, speaking of raising, you want to talk about raising, you guys, generally speaking, the, the people here killed Jesus, the Messiah, but God had other plans and raised him up. And this resurrection is one that triggers the Sadducees, which we're going to talk about. I'm going to explain who that is in just a moment. But it triggers these guys in chapter 4, and it leads to Peter and John's arrest. This chapter begins a new theme that continues, by the way, through the rest of the book of Acts, and that is opposition. The opposition against God's church and against God's message. Jesus' followers will face opposition. And Luke's message is pretty neat. Because they're, they're put on trial just like Jesus was. There's a lot of Jesus parallels here. His message is that the body of Christ undergoes the same opposition as its head, Jesus. Jesus suffered these things. The church is going to suffer these things. And so he starts with this arrest and trial and questioning at a familiar location by a familiar people, which we're going to talk about now. Look at verses 1 and 2. And by the way, we got some things I'll put on the screen in just a moment as far as uh, those that are taking notes. verses 1 and 2 says, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, just by way of reminding you, this this is happening at a place called Solomon's Portico. Would you mind putting that image up there? This is kind of an idea of what this looks like. There's these columns, and that place in the background that you're going to see is more of the, the temple proper but this is the temple complex, and there will be people all over the place. And Jesus, or rather John and Peter, are, t- are teaching about what Jesus has done, who he is, about Jesus being resurrected, and then suddenly they are swarmed. While they are teaching, it says, we can't miss, though, who challenges the apostles. It says there's the priests, the guards, and the Sadducees. The priests were people that did temple ceremonies, so they worked in the temple. The guards, or the captain of the guard, would be like the vice president of the temple. He was also someone who worked on the temple grounds, except his job was to keep order at the temple. And then it mentions these guys called the Sadducees. We could spend a whole lot of time here, but we won't. But I'm going to tell you the part that's relevant. The Sadducees were a Jewish sect similar to the Pharisees in that they're another Jewish sect. You've heard a lot more about them probably. Whereas the Pharisees, they were known for adding sort of their own commentary to the Torah, the law. The Sadducees were different. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection— that the resurrection was possible, that God would resurrect his people. The Sadducees did not. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They believed that what we have here is the life that we have to live, and that's it. They also were big on Rome. They liked Rome being there because it was good for their commerce. They got rich because Rome was there. And so the Sadducees are very different from the Pharisees. But the main thing we have to understand in this context is that they did not believe in the resurrection, which flies right in the face of what has just happened and what Peter is teaching about. Peter's teaching that Jesus rose from the dead is what catches their attention. That's why it says that they're kind of bothered by the fact that it says they are preaching the resurrection from the dead. You see that in what we just read, from the dead. By the way, when it says from the dead, it just kind of looks, it looks like from the dead in our translation. But in the original language, the Greek, the dead is plural. So what Peter's really saying is not just the resurrection of Jesus. He's saying that because of Jesus, there is a greater resurrection. And that's for the fact that It's clear here that when Peter spoke of Jesus' resurrection, he spoke of the invitation 
to others and for others to also be given eternal life to overcome the grave. Peter preaching the gospel. And not just the event, but what the event means for each of us. That healing of the lame man confirmed that Jesus' resurrection will be the first of many. Verse 3. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Their reaction to this resurrection talk was to arrest Peter and John. It says that they they had to wait until the next day because it's evening. It was too late to do some sort of a trial, and so they waited. And so we will see throughout Acts, and even today, this is very important, that opponents of God can arrest God's people, but they cannot arrest God's gospel. They can arrest God's people, but they cannot arrest God's gospel. And that leads us into the first main thing that I want to see today as we talk about this power struggle and that ultimately this is a failed arrest. This is a failed arrest. They're not successful. They put them in prison, but they did not arrest their cause. They didn't arrest their cause. Opponents of God can arrest God's people, but they cannot arrest God's gospel. And I say arrest, I don't mean put in chains. I mean put a halt. It's a more broad definition of that word. Stop. They can't stop God's gospel. Verse 4 kind of puts this in perspective. It says, but many of those who had heard the word believed. What? Man, I thought that we just locked them up and put an end to all this thing. Oh, no. Quite the opposite. They locked them up, and it says, many believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. The last number we heard was 3,000, but that was of all the people. Now it's saying the men was 5,000, which means... The number we're really playing with here is probably closer to 10,000. A lot of people, suddenly, the gospel is swelling. The number of believers has swelled from 12 apostles to 120 in an upper room to 3,000 at Pentecost, and now 5 to 10. Who even knows? Guys, this is a legitimate movement that has gotten the attention of the Sanhedrin. And the reason why, and we'll talk about the Sanhedrin in a second, but the reason why is because for these guys, they, they enjoyed a following. They were teachers of the law. They enjoyed people under their care. But these guys show up and they start siphoning their people. You know what I mean by that, right? Siphoning? It means they get less and we get more. That's what's happening. Uh, we were watching a football game the other day. I'm not going to talk about which football game because it's not important. <clears throat> That's for you, Ray. <clears throat> we're not going to talk about what football game that was. But uh, we're watching the game and I was drinking a Barks Red Cream Soda, which is my favorite soda. Again, that's Barks, B-A-R-Q apostrophe S, if any of you are shopping. Um, Red Cream Soda, not root beer, but Red Cream Soda. Anyway, some of you guys really appreciate me every once in a while. That's just a way to do it. I'm just saying. Um, I was drinking one of these uh, these beverages and a Red Cream Soda. I really enjoy it. It's against Barks, B-A-R-Q apostrophe S. And my kids are are insatiable with sweets and anything that makes them say, wow, this tastes really good. So they're like, Daddy, can I have some? I was like, no, these are mine. And uh, (laughs) I have like, you know, some in the refrigerator, no, they're mine. And she said, come on, Daddy, you drink them all the time. Why can't we have one? I was like, oh, my word, fine. Testing my generosity here. So I'm like, okay, I'll give you some of mine. So I, I take the can that I was drinking, and I go in the kitchen, and I get two small cups, and I pour them in. Um, empty the can because that's, there wasn't that much left so I gave a half to between the two oldest ones and I didn't have one and they were like where's yours? I'm like you, you siphoned it off of me basically is what happened that's what it is right is that they got more while I got less by the way I just went and got another one and they were upset about that too so whatever <clears throat> but that's what a siphon is it's like you know when someone sticks that thing in your gas tank and siphons the gas out it's a really messed up thing to do because it's theft it's you lose it 
and they gain it. Guys, this is why these guys were upset. It's because what they really prided themselves on, their following, all the people they had in their care, was suddenly being siphoned away from them. They put all of their identity, all their eggs in this basket, and suddenly this movement arises that takes it all away. The motivation here, then, is not a theological debate. It proposes itself as that way. They arrest them because of the resurrection talk. But that's not the main thing here. In fact, later on in Acts 5, just a chapter later, 17 and 18, it says, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him, it says that is the party of the Sadducees, it says, and filled with jealousy. This is not a theological debate. Filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. Why were they upset? It wasn't about the resurrection. It was because they were siphoning away from them their following. They aren't defending their faith. They're not theological in their thinking. They're defending their power. This is a power struggle, and God will not lose. Amen? Verses 5 and 6 continue. On the next day, this is when the trial is going to happen, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. <clears throat> in a matter of speaking, I'm not going to go a long time here. This is the who's who of Jerusalem. These are the most important people. This is the Sanhedrin, and they are getting together to squash this whole movement thing, the Jewish high court, the Sanhedrin. Go and put that picture up there, if you will. I've used this before in the book of John. This is sort of a diagram to help you understand what the Sanhedrin looked like. It was like a Supreme Court. There were 70 people in the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, plus one who was the sitting high priest. Caiaphas was the sitting high priest, even though it says Annas. Annas was his dad. It's kind of the way the way they treat presidents, right? You have, if, you, if I saw George Bush, you know what I'd call him? President Bush. Is he our president right now? No. But he sort of keeps this title. Annas was the same way. He kept this title, and so they would invite him as sort of a special guest to speak on these matters. And he had the, the, uh, the reputation to be able to speak on it. So anyway, you have this gathering of individuals. You see the person in the middle is sort of the person that's being accused. You can't really read that. But they're the person that's being accused, and they're on trial before the high priest who's there in the front and center, and then surrounding him are the judicial people that are making a decision. This is the scenario that Peter and John find themselves in. By the way, the Sanhedrin was made up of mostly Sadducees, not Pharisees. Pharisees were the minority. Sadducees were the majority. And so they're not exactly in welcome company. By the way, this is the same group of people who decided to murder Jesus, schemed against him. Annas and Caiaphas, by the way, leading that charge. <clears throat> and by the way, this is not really a clear legal proceeding. It's confusing because the Sanhedrin believes that Jesus is dead, and yet they can't produce a body. What do you do with that? By the way, you better believe if they could produce a body, they would have. They couldn't produce a body. And so they believe Jesus is dead, can't produce a body. And yet you have people here who witnessed this guy miraculously walking. We can't produce a body. This guy's walking. And now they're going to claim that it was in the power of the one that we just killed. They got a problem here. This is a confusing situation. And the trial gets more confusing. Peter and John have technically not broken any laws. And so the initial question here, you would expect to be about the resurrection, but it's not. Verse 7 says, and when they had set them in the midst, in their midst, <clears throat> they inquired. Here's their first question. By what power or by what name did you do this? By what power, number one, and by what name, number two. <clears throat> the Greek grammar here is structured in such a way that the term you, he says, by what power did you do this? It's meant to be derogatory. In other words, how could someone as common and unqualified and uneducated as you 
have done this. Peter agrees, by the way. You got that right. We're not. We, we got no power. It's exactly what he gets to next. You see, their question is not about the resurrection. They feel provoked by the power. They feel provoked by the name. The Greek word for power here is, a, it's, it looks like dynamite, dunamis. It's where we get the word for dynamite. It means something or someone that has in, intrinsic power in their very being. So what they're asking is, what is the essence of this thing that has made this thing occur? When they say, by what name, they're not saying, what's the magic spell that you put on this? When asking by what name, what they're asking is, what is the authority under which you did this? What is the will? Whose will are you speaking on? Well, Peter has already answered this question to the crowds that he's preached to before, not yet to them, but he's about to. In Acts 1.8, Jesus talked about the power in the name. He says, but you will receive what? Power. But you will receive power. The word is dunamis. It's the exact same word. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, there's the power. And you will be my witnesses. Whose name? Jesus' name. In Acts 2.22, Peter says, this is all happening. Jesus of Nazareth. He says, there's the name, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with miracles. The word for miracles in Acts 2.22 is dunamis. It's power. Power of Jesus in the name of Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 12 says, Why are you looking at us as if this man has been raised by our own power? Dunamis. Why are you looking at us as if it's done by us? It's not done by us. Verse 16, he says, In his name, Jesus' name, by faith in his name, he has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. The reason I read those things is to make it very clear. Peter has pulled no punches about whose power and whose name. It's the power of God through the Holy Spirit and the name of Jesus and his authority. Amen? And he's rocking and rolling. They arrested Peter and John under a false pretense, you see. They claimed that it was a resurrection issue, but it was a power issue. A new resurrection power threatens the political powers that be. And so Peter now, in front of them, covers both power and name in one quick statement. Look at verse 8. I'm going to read through 10. Then Peter... Filled with the Holy Spirit. Power. That would be an, a good thing to underline. If you're, guy, if you're somebody that underlines in your Bible. Then Peter, the most important part of this verse, filled with the Holy Spirit. Love that. Said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you. Here it is. And to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus, the Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, that name, this man is standing before you. It's in his name, and it's by him through his power. Guys, consider what a response this is. What power? What name? The power and the name of that guy that you killed a couple of months ago. The one that you can't produce a body for. Last time, and man, this is powerful, y'all. You know, sometimes you got to look beyond what the immediate text says to really understand the gravity of a situation. You look before this, and there's some context that we can gather about Peter's life. And that is that the last time that Peter, you know what the last time Peter was surrounded by the Sanhedrin was? The last time that Peter was surrounded by the Sanhedrin, he was standing in the same courtyard, probably that he is right here, but he was doing so then 
as a Jesus-denying, three times, coward. Last time he was here, he had denied Jesus three times and was a coward to his rabbi, to his friend, to his master. By the way, last time he was here, he was standing by as a coward, watching Jesus be mocked and assaulted. What changed? Well, I'll tell you what changed. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what changed. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the key. Jesus said this would be the key. In Matthew 10, 19, and 20, Jesus said, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious. When they, in other words, when they arrest you, do not be anxious how you're to speak or what you're to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. Verse 20, Matthew 10, 20 says, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. We hear the word arrest, and we think about handcuffs. But a more broad definition is to stop something, to halt something, to halt someone. I'll say it again. Guys, opponents of God can arrest God's people, but they cannot arrest God's gospel. They can arrest God's people, but they can't arrest God's people. They can't stop it. The church goes forward. Don't you see the irony here? I love this so much. Don't you see the irony? Every effort of the enemy to halt the march forward of the church only increases the volume of those calling Jesus Lord. Don't you see the irony of that? The Messiah is murdered. He's gloriously resurrected. His death was his victory, not his defeat. His disciples are arrested. The number swells from 3,000 to 5,000 plus. Stephen in chapter 7, chapter 8 is going to be martyred, the first Christian martyr. But you know what his martyr began? It began the journey of the greatest missionary story who's ever been told, Saul of Tarsus, who is at that martyr. Every time the devil tries to stomp on the flame, it only spreads the flame. All but one of the 12 apostles were martyred, and yet their deaths only fanned the flame as the gospel, which began in an upper room, has wrapped around this globe for 2,000 years. Is God's gospel stoppable? cannot arrest God's gospel. It ever marches forward. The reason why is because of the power of the movement. And because of the power of the movement is not men, but the Spirit of God. Can I just say this? Guys, if the gates of hell, if the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church, then neither, and, neither can any lesser enemy. Rome and Caesar, the greatest empire and emperor in the world, is remembered only in history books. And yet Jesus has his people gathering every week, praising his name, the king who is eternal. You have world religions that come against Christianity. They will never be successful. School restrictions will never prevail over the march forward. Government mandates will never prevail over the march onward. The Supreme Court rulings, whatever they may be, will never stand in the way and arrest God's gospel. There's no culture war. There's no sexual uh, indoctrination, no social mockery, no scorn, no name calling, no intimidation. None of it will arrest God's gospel because the church marches on. Not because of the church, but because of the power that has filled us. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. He's different. He's unstoppable because God is unstoppable. God has no president, no governor, no senator, no congressman or judge 
will ever rival God Almighty and his unstoppable church. We march on, not because we cannot be arrested, but because our God and his gospel will ever go forward. It's a failed arrest, and it's still failed. (laughs) Satan will never stop it. It ever goes forward. Not much of a power struggle. The second thing is a personal building inspection. A personal building inspection. We're going to talk in a moment about this word cornerstone, which we've already been singing about. By the way, sorry my voice is a little raspy this morning. A personal building inspection. Peter had accused crowds, by the way, already in the book of Acts. He'd accused crowds of being guilty of Jesus' death twice already in this book. He did it on Pentecost. He also did it the day before this, the day of prayer at the temple. But he did that when talking to everyone. It's very general. But when you're talking to everyone, you're not really singling out anyone. It changes here. It goes from being a broad message to say, you guys, you're a special group. Let me tell you why. Man, you could cut the tension, I feel like, with a knife. This next accusation is different. He is calling out the exact people who spat on, beat, and convicted, wrongfully convicted Jesus. This is not a general accusation anymore. He's saying, I got something to tell you guys. Verses 10, this guy's not, not afraid, right? 10 through 12 says, let it be known to all of you, you, plural, to all of you, he's saying, the Sanhedrin, to all the people of Israel too, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, Sanhedrin, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. Kind of makes you feel like that guy's standing there perhaps. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among which men must be saved. What Peter is saying is that Jesus was a stone. He's using a metaphor and an analogy. Jesus was a stone that was rejected by them, but it is through Jesus that although they discarded him and their structure, God is taking him and he's building something new upon him. He is the cornerstone. And on him, the entirety of our faith and our hope is built, which we just got done singing about. In ancient times, a cornerstone, builders would use a cornerstone as the keystone around which a structure would be built. And so once the cornerstone was set, it became the basis for determining every measurement in the remaining construction. In other words, everything was aligned to, measured by it, founded upon it. The cornerstone was the reason the rest of the structure existed. My kids play with these things. They're called magnetiles. Anybody know what magnetiles are? (laughs) Yeah, okay. Yeah, cool. I like magnetiles. So magnetiles are, they're magnetic tiles. I know. Good name. Only thing is with magnetiles, if you start building, and you can build really cool things with these things. Show the picture of what my kids built yesterday. I gave you that. My kids like to play with magnet tiles, and they build all kinds of stuff. So it starts, though, with just a few pieces, right? you got to start somewhere. And so if you start your building like this, it's, it's hard to do it, starting with walls. So it's, you may get them to stay. Okay, I've got them to stay. But then when you start to build on that, it gets, it's hard to do that, right? The way to start with magnet tiles is really easy. You start with a corner. You see? And with a corner, I can, I can mess with this. It's not going to fall. And so on that corner, then, I'm having fun. 
then we can really start to build something, right? See? Please, hold your applause. <clears throat> My point is, this right here can't exist if that right there doesn't exist. It'll fall every time. And you want to come play with that later, you can. The builder can build something to behold. And look at that. By the way, that's their, uh, I said, what is it, guys? You know their imagination. They said, well, it's a, it's a church restaurant combo. The, the Hot Wheels cars are there because that, the, the part close to us is the parking lot. So maybe they can help us with our parking issue. You can take that down. Thank you. Guys, the builder can build something to behold, but the structure still stands because it is built on that corner right there. It's a good analogy because, guys, the cornerstone of the church, everything that we are and do stands because of one, Jesus Everything that we are, everything that we do, it only stands because of Christ. And God, by the way, without Christ, this thing falls. This, this falls. This people group, it falls. Every stone falls if it doesn't find its place according to the cornerstone. Fellowship, listen. <clears throat> we are a Jesus-centered, gospel-saturated church because if we aren't, we are just a religious social club. It's pointless. It's a waste. And you need to go home. But this is not what we are. We're not a religious social club. We are a church built on the cornerstone. There is no power in being a social club. But there is infinite power on display here, there, here. Not because of the preacher, but because of the good shepherd who has put us here. Infinite power because of the cornerstone upon which God is building. When you build those magnet tiles high enough, it gets hard to get into stand. Guys, God never has a hard time getting his building to stand. It will ever go higher and higher and higher because the cornerstone is firm. And individually, that means something for us corporately, fellowship, we need to be people of the cornerstone, amen? We need to be a gospel-saturated, Jesus-driven church. We need to make, Jesus, make much of Jesus in all that we do. And if ever there comes a time that this preacher doesn't preach Christ and him crucified, call out sinners in their sin, and provide the way of salvation only through the name of Jesus, fire me. Please fire me. Because if we are not built on the cornerstone, we will fail. That's the negative. The positive is that because we are, look what God is doing. He's working, y'all. And if you've been here a little while, you've seen it. That's true of the church. It's also true for us as individuals. You have to be built on the cornerstone. Guys, for God to begin building something in you, you must have your foundation in Christ alone. In Christ alone. That's why Peter says in verse 12, salvation is in no other name. You know, there's something neat to see here that we're not going to go there yet because it's in the next couple of chapters. <clears throat> but I do think it gets some neat context here. In chapter 4, which we just read, chapter or verse 11, Peter calls the Sanhedrin builders. Um, builders because they, they, they live and work around the temple complex. If anybody knows the temple, they know the temple. 
They know the religious stuff. They, the, whole, the whole religion was built around this structure. They know every nook and cranny. They're responsible for the Jewish people and the proper observance of the Jewish religion. And as a result, they're supposed to know the Messiah when they see him. That's important. They should know the cornerstone when they see him coming. The same way that a carpenter should know his way around a hammer and nails, a teacher should know a good curriculum versus a bad curriculum. A chef knows ingredients through and through. You get the point. These guys should have known the cornerstone when they saw him. <clears throat> and we saw him in the Old Testament, y'all. They saw him in the Old Testament, but they did not recognize him. Take a deep breath here. He was a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah, according to Genesis 22, 26, 28, and 49. He was to appear after the rebuilding of Jerusalem, Jerusalem, according to Daniel 9, 25. He'd be born in Jerusalem, according to Micah 5, 2. He'd be born of a virgin and be called Emmanuel, according to Isaiah 7, 13, and 14. He'd follow one who heralded his coming, that'd be John the Baptist, according to Isaiah 40, verses 3 and 4. A messenger would prepare the way for him, according to Malachi 3, 1. He would appear in Galilee and be a light to Gentiles, according to Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. He'd perform miracles, according to Isaiah 7. <clears throat> he would teach in parables, according to Psalm 78. He would be called God's son, according to Psalm 2. He would enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey, according to Zechariah 9. He'd be betrayed, according to Psalm 41. He'd be rejected, according to Isaiah 51. He'd be despised, according to Psalm 22. He'd be silent before his accusers, according to Isaiah 53. He'd be beaten and spat upon, according to Isaiah 50. He'd be numbered with the transgressors, according to Isaiah 53. His hands and feet would be pierced, according to Psalm 22. His suffering would include thirst, according to Psalm 22. He'd cry out to God, according to Psalm 22. He'd be stripped of his clothing, according to Psalm 22. They would cast lots for his clothing, according to Psalm 22. He would suffer for the sins of others, according to Isaiah 53. He'd be buried in a wealthy man's tomb, according to Isaiah 53. His body would not decay, according to Psalm 16, and it did not. He would have an eternal kingdom, according to 2 Samuel 7, 16, Daniel 7, he would bring salvation to the ends of the earth according to Isaiah 42, 49, and Micah 5. He would be the cornerstone according to Zechariah 10 and Psalm 118. They should have seen him coming. Like a hammer with nails, they should have known him. And they rejected him. And they didn't reject him because they didn't know him. They rejected him because they didn't want him. The Jews had a long history of ignoring, abusing, and killing their prophets. They missed the coming of the only one who could bring them salvation. But I want you to hear me say something. It wasn't too late for them. Please listen to those words. It wasn't too late for them. In fact, that's why Peter's preaching to them. This is really rich, man. Just a couple of chapters later in Acts 6, 7. Please listen to this. Remember who we're talking about, Sanhedrin, priests. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. But listen to this last part. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That should hit. These guys, the rejectors, who missed him, rejected him, missed it, were given an opportunity and many of them, it says, received him. 
They're priests meant to intercede between God and man, but they realized that they were only, there was only one priest that they needed, the one who can reconcile God to man. And it's the one who was sent by God to man. I say that because of this. They rejected him time and time again, even crucified him, and yet there was still an opportunity for them to repent and believe. Listen, you may have lived a life full of Godward rejection. You may have been missing him for years and years and years. You may have sat under many sermons every Sunday till kingdom come, and you've rejected him, and you've missed him, and yet today, you have an opportunity. Today, you have heard the opportunity. You have heard the opportunity. And that is that you have a great big problem called sin. But God has provided a great big solution named Jesus. And if you repent and turn from your sin and believe on Jesus Christ for the salvation of your sin, you too, though having rejected for so long, may be saved. If you're hearing this invitation today and have rejected him in your past, your past sins, your mistakes, your rejections, guys, listen, those things do not disqualify you from receiving him today. And praise God for that. Give up the power struggle. Get off the throne of your own life and relinquish it to him. It's not too late for you. Stop rejecting him and finally receive him. For others of us in this room, we need to give up the power struggle in a different way. For all of us in some way, we're part of the power struggle. This inner war between the flesh that we like to feed and crave into sometimes and the leading of the spirit. I just want you to hear me say, oftentimes we believe the lie that the best life for us is the one with us in the driver's seat. But God's directive for your life is greater than yours. It's more fulfilling than yours. It's more joy-filling than yours. It's more liberating than yours. It's more comforting than yours. And Satan will peddle the lie that it's not as fun, that it's handcuffing, that it's arresting. But it's backwards. The arrested life is the one lived apart from Christ. The free life is the one lived where you lay it down and give it to him. So, perhaps this morning it's time for you to give up the power struggle. This morning will you join me in asking God to help us to do that, not apart from him, but with him. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, may we never miss those words.